I have up to now explained several aspects of purification and just to repeat and help to remember them I will briefly enumerate them once more the first and central aspect of our mental direction is mindfulness which is purification because we cannot do anything unwholesome neither through thought, speech or body while we are mindful and the two aspects of mindfulness which I have explained so far and recommended for practice is watching one's body movements and actions the more movements than, than actions and watching our mind content both outside of meditation the more we do that the easier it is to meditate I can only explain to you the Buddha's teaching I can show you the direction but the work is all yours the more you do it the more you will feel at ease and more you will recognize the value the Buddha said about himself I'm only the shore of the way the map that he has drawn for us of the spiritual life is very exact and precise and it has landmarks everywhere and it has road signs at every corner and it's also quite an interesting map but nobody's ever got to their destination through map reading everybody's got to have to travel to get there the map reading of spiritual teaching is just as popular as we find that with other armchair travelers if we don't do it nothing at all happens in fact there are people not so much in the west because Buddhism isn't that well known but there are people who know the map by heart they can tell you every street corner every landmark every road sign and that's it learning maps by heart well it's better probably than learning something else by heart but it doesn't do the trick so the sure of the way the Buddha gave an exact instruction and whatever we can follow of those instructions that's to our purification the purification aspect is the 
means of peace and happiness. And since there's very little peace and happiness in the world, all we have to do is open one newspaper every 10 years, and it always says the same thing, we can tell how little purification there is. It's very simple. So we have a road map to follow, which starts out with mindfulness. Very simple, isn't it? If we get in the car and we want to go from, let's say, from London to Devon, and we're not mindful, we're going to crash into the first lamppost, aren't we? That's the same with the spiritual path. The mindfulness that we use helps us to keep on the path. And only then can we keep on the path, just like driving a car. Because if we're not mindful, if we don't pay attention, we get carried away. Carried away from the promises of the world, which it can't keep. The world promises us happiness and pleasure and joy, if. And then we have a list of ifs, which everybody makes up their own list, but which is usually in accordance with what is available. Because otherwise it wouldn't make much sense, and we're all pretty sensible. So we look at what's available in the world, and then we make up our list. Having crossed off, the first 20 items and not having gained what we wanted, it then must become clear that putting up another 20 items isn't going to make any difference. Some people never get that clear. They make list after list. Whether they put it on paper or in their heads doesn't make any difference. Some people actually do put it on paper, but most people just carry it around in their heads. So mindfulness is our first and most important protection against being carried away by the promises of the world and the temptations which are all around us, everywhere, for our senses, that promise something, and they are the guardians of our senses. Mindfulness is the guardian and the protector. And because the world is full of temptations and full of people who believe in those temptations, we've got to have a guardian and a protector. And if we don't use mindfulness, we've lost already on the first count. Paying attention, <coughs> paying attention to oneself, knowing exactly, watching the physical movement protects us from having thoughts of the future and the past, sensual desires. Watching the content of thought protects us from believing the unwholesome ones. 
because we are an objective observer. As soon as we become an objective observer of ourselves, we are already on the path, on the spiritual path. Doesn't matter what we call it otherwise. The objective observer is the one who helps us, who recognizes when we are going off the rails with our thinking, protects us from the constant seesaw effect which people experience in their lives. There are some beyond children's age that actually enjoy that seesaw, but most people don't. The up and down effect, now I've got it, now I don't, now I see it, now I don't, now I want it, now I don't, and so on. The mindfulness of our thought processes, our content of thought, that protects us from that, and eventually brings that inner equilibrium, that balance, which makes life simple. So that's the first order of the day, mindfulness. The other things that we have talked about so far was getting order into one's outer life, order and cleanliness, and also in one's emotional life outside of meditation, through the kind of company we keep and the kind of actions we do, having an orderly life, simple, the simpler the better. The less we have to attend to, the more we can direct our mind towards the spiritual growth process. See, our body grew up quite automatically because we did get decent food and medicine when needed. And then the body grows up. And at age 20 or so, it stops growing. And interestingly enough, we have the mistaken idea that once it stops growing, it remains the same size. But when you get older, you find out that you've been shrinking. You get smaller again. Of course, you don't go back to baby size. But it does shrink. And the Buddha said exactly that about the mind. He said, if it doesn't grow, it goes backward. We can never remain in the same place. And anyone who has meditated in the past and has had good results and then stopped meditating can find out that they have to actually work again to get it back to the state that they were at before. We'd never remain in one place. Either we grow or we retract. Sometimes, of course, the retraction is very um, minimal. And most of the time we don't notice it at all because we take ourselves for granted. We have phrases like, I always do that, or I can't ever stand that. Those phrases give voice to our viewpoints about ourselves. 
we think we are always in one way or another. But in reality, we either grow or go back. So our outer and our emotional life needs to be looked after so that our spiritual life can grow. This is the only reason, the only good and valid reason for being a human being, to grow spiritually. There are no other reasons. One can think and think and think. What else is there? Certainly the reason is not to become rich and famous, although some people think it may be, but it doesn't make much sense, does it? Some people think it might be a reason for having lots of children, and that's also outdated, isn't it? And uh, so what else is there? There's only that. That's to grow. To grow with mind and heart in the same way that we initially grew with the body. And there, if we keep on working at it, it will not retract. It can grow to the ultimate. The ultimate, which is has many names and uh, many ways of explaining but there is such a thing and we hear about it in sort of vague ways when the talk gets about religion or something like that but in the Buddha's explanation it's neither vague nor is it religious it is the ability of every human being to transcend our humanness which doesn't mean we get a different body we look like we always did but we can transcend that humanness which is constantly beset with difficulties which sits on that seesaw so we have the mindfulness we have the outer and emotional order that we put our life into and then we have the meditative process which has immediate benefits which I've already explained of making good karma which is purification which has the immediate benefits of learning to label and substitute and to counteract the slothful and the lazy mind and has the meditation has the immediate purification of any moment of concentration any moment of concentration is one moment of purifying and then we have the purification through the four supreme efforts of not allowing the mind to remain with that which is neither beneficial nor wholesome neither helpful nor creating upliftment but the opposite whatever it may create worry, fear, anger, dislike and those four supreme efforts are most important to remember and all you have to do is remember four words that should be possible avoid, overcome, develop and maintain and if you can't remember them, please write them down. They are the most important words on the spiritual path, on any spiritual path. 
to avoid the unwholesome, to overcome it, to develop the wholesome, and to maintain it. Now, the wholesome does not mean to be a goody-goody, not at all. It means that we recognize what constitutes a well-balanced and loving human being and recognize how to get there and do it. It does not constitute the pretense of being holy. The word holy is quite a nice word actually. It means to be whole. That's all it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a halo around one's head. And it doesn't mean that one has to act in a special way, which is different from everybody else's. And yet it's recognizable. But only for those who are also on that same path and level because our environments are a mirror. <coughs> That's why we say only a Buddha can recognize a Buddha. We can easily recognize somebody who is angry. We've all been there. We can also recognize somebody who's trying to be helpful. We've also done that. But to recognize somebody who is enlightened, that would be beyond our capacity because we haven't been there. We don't know it. It's um, interesting because it means that that what we dislike in others is exactly what we carry around. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it. We can only see what we've got. So every time we find somebody and somebody, somebody something that we dislike, we should rejoice because that person was holding up a mirror to us. We finally saw it. Oh, that's what I've got. That's very unpleasant. Aha, uh -huh, I've got to get rid of it. But nothing to do with that other person. The other person just happens to be there in order to give us that incentive. Sometimes, of course, if we've practiced long enough, we may recognize in other people things that we used to do and used to think and used to say. But when we do, they have no more sting to them because we don't carry them around anymore. They're just a movie, that's all. We recognize them because we know them. We used to be there too. But the only thing that they do then is they arouse compassion. But when we're still there, when we still have those that we dislike, those inner reactions, then they don't arouse compassion in us. They arouse dislike. And foolishly enough, we dislike the other. We shouldn't dislike ourselves either. We should be very happy that we finally found something. Mindfulness is also called being awake. It's being awake, fully awake. Unfortunately, human beings walk around 
with a certain sleepiness in their mind because there's so many things we don't want to know about because we think it could be very unpleasant for us so we'd like to not we don't like to really look at these things mindfulness makes it possible to look at whatever there is without having a reaction to them the more we practice that the easier it becomes the four supreme efforts avoid overcome develop and maintain that concerns the content of thought and the labeling in the meditation should be an excellent beginning or an excellent help for us to do that also in daily life of course the labeling is only necessary if we are disturbed by the thought it takes us off the meditation if the uh, thoughts do not come or if they're so fleeting that one can go right back to the meditation subject labeling is unnecessary by that time the concentration itself takes over as a purification system because the concentration is so strong then we don't have any disturbing thoughts so that the purification is automatic it's very nice because we don't have to work quite so hard anymore we still have to work but not quite as hard because the purification just rolls along if we meditate every single day for enough time to make it happen now we also have the purification system for our emotions equally precisely explained by the Buddha and pragmatically realized how our difficulties come about they are the, they're called in Pali the four Brahma Viharas now a Vihara is a place to live usually a religious place a house and the Brahmas are the gods so they are translated as the four divine abidings which still doesn't tell us much but it has quite a sensible meaning behind it it means that if we have only those four emotions as our emotional makeup we will have an inner paradise and we are the makers of hell or heaven nobody else can make it for us if it was somebody else doing it for us it would be a very unjust chaotic existence it's neither chaotic nor is it so unjust we do it ourselves all of these states 
are levels of consciousness. Heaven is a level of consciousness and so is hell. And I dare say all of us have been in both. It's very easy to get there. In fact, it seems to be a little easier to get to hell. But heaven is also accessible. Why not? Why shouldn't it be? We wrote it down. We thought about it a long time ago. So it's there for our own consciousness. The four divine abidings, the four Brahma Viharas, are four kinds of emotions, which the Buddha said are the only ones that are worth having. Everything else could be discarded and should be discarded. They are, again, like a heading. Each one is a heading containing many subheadings, but they're quite clear and precise. So we don't have any problem with understanding. The only problem is with doing. In Pali they're called Metta Karuna Mudita Upekka. Metta, M-E-T-T-A, is quite a well-known word, particularly because we find it difficult to translate it into any of our European languages with precision. We usually translate it as loving-kindness in English, which is a nice word, but it doesn't have much of a charge to it. It's a, a fairly um, level word that doesn't really have a great deal of imagination. So I'm going to use the word love, which it means. But it doesn't mean the kind of love that people usually associate with that word. What people associate with that word is a totally different and not pure emotion. The far enemy of love is, of course, hate. There's no problem with that. But the near enemy is affection which contains attachment and that's the kind of love that we know and that's the kind of love that people really think is so valuable and that they search for and it's supposed to have all sorts of wonderful results like living happily ever after Logically, we know that this hardly can happen. Emotionally, we still believe it should. But it can't. Because we haven't got it sorted out, what love really means. The way we look at love is that we want a one-to-one relationship which then very often turns into a one-to-two or one-to-three or one-to-four relationship, depending how many little ones arise. And that's supposed to be then love. 
it has with it the fear that it may get lost because subconsciously everybody knows that everything is impermanent even though we may never have used the word or allowed ourselves to think about it for even half a second everybody knows it we've all experienced it over and over again and even though we don't usually look at it because we don't like to be that mindful and recognize it for what it is because we think it's a threat which it isn't it's the only relieving factor of human existence but we consider it a threat so we don't really like to admit it but the fear is there that this one thing that we now have decided is love is going to get lost because the other person may change their mind may not live up to expectations which they usually don't may not um, stick around for various reasons one of them being death and because of that fear the purity of love is immediately impaired because fear is akin to hate we don't hate the other person but we hate the idea that our love could get lost because the person could get lost and because of that we don't know what it's like to love in purity because we only know that kind of love sometimes people have a loving relationship with friends which has a little more purity in it because it's not quite that attached but again it doesn't seem to be so satisfying because the attachment appears to make the relationship satisfactory but it doesn't at all it does just the opposite we then consider that love can only exist if that one or two or three people are around which on a planet with five billion people is absurd that one or two or three people got to be there for us to feel love we can choose from five billion and not only can we choose from five billion we can include all of them but one of the greatest mistakes that is being made with love is that we want to get it that's the utter foolish absurdity in human life which could ever exist and it's fostered by movies and novels and uh, stories and the whole ambience that exists within the human um, confrontation we want to get love and we forget completely that if somebody loves us that's their love all it does for us is that it's an ego support look how lovable I am this person loves me and then that person changes his or her mind and all of a sudden I'm no longer lovable 
just because somebody else changed their mind. And then very often that's a tragedy. I haven't done anything. The other person's done something, but I think I'm no longer lovable. Wanting to be loved is an ego support system. And it doesn't work. Unless we do the work for it. So instead of wanting to be loved, there's only one thing which has any sense to it, which is realistic and successful. And that's wanting to love, to learn to love. It's a skill like any other. And it's probably the least taught and recognized skill that human beings can acquire. Maybe the second least. The first, the, the primary least recognized skill that human beings can acquire and that they're not taught is to meditate properly. But to love properly comes right behind it. We've got enormous institutions everywhere in the world where we are taught to use our mind and to use it so that we can make a good living. And there's nothing to be said against that because reading and writing and arithmetic are very useful and they do train our mind to have an, a certain insight into our human potential. But we don't have enormous institutions where we are taught to use our heart properly. In fact, in some areas of the world it's shunned. One doesn't think it's such a good thing to show one's heart. And actually, it's the only way that we can have a connection, a relationship with other people which can be satisfactory. If we don't have a loving relationship with other people, we'll always feel isolated, separated, and threatened. Because we can tell, without even having to say it to ourselves, that we are as small as a little a tiny little bit of sand on the beach within the grandeur of the whole universe. And how can we, being so small and insignificant, protect ourselves from harm? We know very well we can't. We try. The buildings of the insurance companies are usually the largest in any city. But does that protect us from harm? Usually it just helps the people in the insurance company to make a living, that's all. So to protect ourselves is an impossibility because we're totally vulnerable. Our bodies are completely vulnerable. The only protection that is possible 
and that is a surefire insurance is to recognize eventually our interconnectedness our sameness our togetherness and love it and I will give you some meditation methods in due course which are designed to help us to see that to experience that to experience a complete togetherness of all that exists now obviously just starting with such methods isn't going to have an immediate effect but at least one can make a beginning the loving kindness meditation is designed to make a beginning to open our heart as I've already said if you only think it keep on thinking it eventually the feeling will come but the most important thing is, is to recognize that this is what one needs to do that life can only be joyful can only be fulfilled and fulfilling if we have a heart connection with the people around us and the more we have that the easier it is for the other people also to have that heart connection so to want to be loved is foolishness but to love to want to love that makes sense and to want to love is not difficult if one starts out with loving oneself everybody knows the saying about that but very few people ever pay attention love thy neighbor as thyself how, how are you going to love your neighbor? exactly the way you love yourself so who do you love first? if you're supposed to do one thing exactly the same as the other you first got to do the other love yourself and then you can love your neighbor and loving oneself does not mean indulging oneself because that's not love that's foolish loving oneself means caring being concerned knowing with wisdom what's good for oneself recognizing one's own difficulties overcoming them working with them having compassion for oneself understanding how difficult it is to be a human being and even more difficult to be a good human being and loving oneself in spite of all the errors and mistakes that we make loving ourselves in spite of all the things that we know about ourselves only then can we love others in spite of what we think about them of what we know about them of what we project onto them if we learn to love without having this constant judgment in the mind then we will feel at ease about ourselves it doesn't mean that we are then so self-assured that we don't have any desire any longer to grow on the contrary when we love ourselves properly we can see all the spots that need purifying 
and we will do it lovingly. We don't blame ourselves, we do it lovingly. And then we can transfer that to everyone else. We know exactly what it's like to be a human being. And we don't have any ideas that we are better or worse. We just are, and so is everybody else. That heart connection to others makes life simple. We don't have to worry about what they're going to think of us. We don't have to worry about how they're going to reply to us, how they're going to react. Nothing. Because we feel love for that other person. So whatever they do is going to be their problem, not ours. It's a very important aspect of karma. I make mine, everybody else makes theirs. They're only triggers. I can't inherit somebody else's karma, nor can they inherit mine. It's a very important distinction, because if we love other people, then our feeling inside of us is pure, and clear and nothing to worry about. That person then has a reaction which is not pure and clear. What do we feel? Compassion that it should have worked out that way for the other person. Everybody has meetings with people every single day. Every meeting with another person should be regarded as a classroom. Every meeting is an invitation for love and compassion. That's all it is. That we then have to talk about other things doesn't matter because It is actually a fact that the words we say are only 7% of our communication. The other 93% are made up of body language, tone of voice, facial expression, and the feeling that comes from the person. I was shown those statistics by a communication workshop where people learn to communicate with each other, which is quite an indictment of human relationships, that we have to learn to communicate. Why don't we communicate properly? Because we don't love properly. Meta is well translated as unconditional love. In other words, no conditions. It just is. And it has absolutely nothing to do with whether another person is lovable. Because should we be searching the earth for somebody who is totally lovable, we'd be hard put to find one. Only the fully enlightened one is fully lovable and of those are very few. 
and we probably wouldn't find them. And they mightn't even appear lovable to us, because we wouldn't even know they're fully enlightened. It has nothing to do with another person wants our love. It has nothing to do whether the other person needs our love or whether the other person is going to return our love. It's got absolutely nothing to do with any of that. That's all the other person's reaction. And they have to be allowed to have their reaction. Whether we allow it or not, they're going to have them. We cannot force anyone to either love or not love. That's absolutely everybody's own heart ability. Love is nothing but the quality of one's own heart. Just like intelligence is the quality of one's own mind. We all have it. We all have that quality. And we've all experienced it here and there once or twice, now and again. But why not have it all the time? We know very well that we are fairly intelligent. We don't lose that intelligence just because we're not sitting in a classroom. We're using it all the time. We're using it to assess all our life situations. So why do we lose our love when there isn't somebody there who's either so wonderful that we have to love them or that loves us. Love is a quality of the heart. And it isn't <coughs> do-gooding or anything like that. And it's with our own family, for instance. And we are furious and angry and upset and stressed. How does a family feel? Furious, angry, stressed, are certainly unhappy because that one member, ourselves, is having that kind of feeling and that kind of vibration. So the family gets upset, especially mothers with children know that. More children immediately become upset when the mother is upset. So what is that in the human family? It's exactly the same thing. If there's love coming from us, maybe just to the person next to us. We have injected love into the whole of that human family residence. And the more of that we can do, the easier it will be for humanity to have an antidote against all that hate and dislike and envy and jealousy that we see everywhere. That's what we can do. Each one of us is part of that family. And if we don't do it, who? Rabbi Hillel said about 2,000 years ago, if not me, who then? If not now, when? It's just as timely as it was 2,000 years ago. If not me, who is going to do it? If not now, when are you going to do it? 
Now is the time. There's only one time in our lives, and that's now. Every time we can do something, it's always called now. And the only one that we can do it with is me. Nobody else. It's only me. And when we actually realize that our own happiness and the well-being of the people around us is all dependent upon our love quality, maybe that would be an incentive to learn that skill. That skill means that our judgmental attitudes are let go. It doesn't mean we can't discriminate between good and bad, but we don't have a calling to be judge and jury. If that were so, we might be sitting on the bench. We don't have that. So we're just quite ordinary beings with heart and mind. And while we are able to use the mind, we must learn to use the heart. It's not difficult. Anybody can do it. But most people never think of it. That this is the most valuable thing they can do. And obviously, in the beginning, when one starts practicing that, it won't always work. Well, that doesn't matter. When we were learning to read and write, that didn't always work either. But now we can do it very easily. We've been doing it for decades. We don't even have to think about it. We can read and write very well. So one day we can love very well. No problem at all. Because we've been doing it for decades. We have to watch our negativity, obviously. And when the negativities arrive, and they usually arise with people, because, as I said, they talk back, and because we feel stung, that's the time to take a stand with ourselves and substitute. If we feel negative about somebody, disliking, rejecting, resisting, we need to substitute quickly. We may not be able to substitute with love right away because that's the exact opposite. But we may be able to substitute with the feeling of compassion that the person who is not pleasant at this particular moment in time must be unhappy. Somebody who is completely happy can never be unpleasant. The two just don't go together. And since most people experience unhappiness quite frequently, people are unpleasant quite frequently. But if we realize that that's only due to their unhappiness, compassion can arise. The with feeling. I will explain compassion in greater detail. But it's a feeling which is based on the fact that we know ourselves. So when we can substitute anger, dislike, rejection, resistance with compassion, we are well on the way to learning to love without any 
conditions that we impose. When it comes to discriminating, we can remember that we don't love the crime, but there's no reason to hate the criminal. And we can also remember that dislike, hate, rejection, all those are very harmful for ourselves. Because we ourselves are the nearest to ourselves, so we must remember how we can harm or help ourselves. The unconditional love means that the heart is ready and willing to give. And this quality of giving is the self-giving, and the self-giving is necessary for meditation. And I like to show you the connections that come from the purification of thought and emotion to making it possible to meditate properly. Because if we don't give ourselves to the meditation without trying to get the support system of our thinking, we cannot meditate. That's why I have said and say again, start every meditation with feeling, appreciation, gratitude, contentment. Give yourself to those feelings and then it's easier for the mind to stop trying to assert itself. Thinking is nothing but self-assertion. And to give oneself to the meditative process. Loving is giving. We give love. The mistake that the world makes, humanity at large makes, with some exceptions, is we want to get something. We want to get love. We want to get something all the time. It doesn't work. Who's going to give it? Once in a while we meet somebody who's quite willing to give something. Well, wonderful. But as a lifestyle, it doesn't work. But giving works. We can give as much as we have. And the most interesting part of that is that the more we give, the more we've got. Very easy to see with love. The more of it we give away, the more we've got. But it's a law of nature which works for everything. People don't believe it, but it works for everything. The more we give away, the more we have. With love it is also, of course, that the more of it we give away, the more we get back. But that's no consideration. Because the consideration is not getting. The consideration is giving. The spiritual path is therefore diametrically opposed to the material life. The material life is getting. Getting security, getting jobs, getting houses, getting people, getting appreciation, getting whatever it is we're looking for. Getting something. The spiritual life is diametrically opposed it's giving as giving whatever we have and the generosity of giving has that immediate feeling of contentment 
particularly also with giving love. So we have a clear path to changing our heart connection from specific attachment to a general quality of the heart. Our attachments are called the near enemies because they appear to be real love. But when there are attachments, which means that our love depends upon those people being around and loving us back and being there, we're stuck. Just like being stuck to this pillow, being so attached to it, one can't go anywhere. Well, nobody would like that. Nobody would like to sit on this pillow for the rest of their lives. But it would really stop us from ever knowing anything else. Family love can be a seedbed for the quality of love in the heart because at least we can get to know what it feels like to be there for others and to have others as more important than ourselves. And if we use it as a seedbed, it's very valuable we can recognize the feeling in the heart and expand from there. But as a purification, it has to become universal, unconditional, and then it doesn't have attachment. Then it doesn't have this particular person in mind. Buddha said that we can love everyone as if they were our own children. And because of having had so many lives already, it's quite likely that everybody has been our son or daughter at one time, or if you prefer, our father and mother. And if we look at people like that, it's much easier, because then we can see that there is a reality to the human family. That be enough on that subject. Now, if you have any questions, you can ask them now. Okay. Doesn't matter. <laughs> he answered that with that there are four imponderables and that's what they're called the imponderables um, and these four are the uh, intricacies of karma the uh, range of influence of a Buddha the range of influence of a person in the meditative absorption in the beginning of the universe. He said, no need to know. doesn't help for your enlightenment. Once you're enlightened, you know anyway. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Yes. 
Well, I will explain all that on Saturday evening, but I will answer you briefly now. Um, I will explain that in in detail. The uh, the bowing is um, an expression of gratitude, of devotion, of love, of respect, and of recognizing the humility or the humbleness of a human being as compared to a Buddha, as compared to the highest ideal. Now the devotion, respect and gratitude are absolutely essential because they are hard qualities and this thing cannot be done with the mind alone. It's got to have both. Heart and mind have to be equally involved. Obviously the mind understands and makes a connection, but if the heart doesn't speak, it remains a very interesting roadmap. So this is uh, uh, the reason. I will probably repeat myself on that because it's part of what I will explain. Anything else? Yes. You have something to point us out to us all. Uh, I got the impression reading the commentaries that Jesus emphasized his love rather than reading. Reading the sutras, I have the impression that the Buddha perhaps emphasized his wisdom perhaps more than love, perhaps I may be wrong. I wondered if it is possible that the role of a nun uh, and of a mother may be to bridge the gap uh, and to <laughs> perhaps uh, justify the Buddha in finally allowing women into the family. Uh, none, of the la- none of the latter. But the um, Buddha's uh, teaching emphasizes both love and wisdom. One of the most famous uh, discourses of the Buddha is the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And the Karaniya Metta Sutta is a discourse which goes from our very ordinary state, on one page the whole thing, and our ordinary state that we're at now, of 15 conditions that we should uh, cultivate so that we then can become totally and universally loving. And it is a very famous discourse and one of the oldest part of the Sutta Nipata. And the Sutta Nipata is recognized by the scholars as the very oldest of the discourses that have been transmitted to us. Um, certainly the analysis of the Buddha is geared towards wisdom, but we cannot dis- um, separate ourselves between heart and mind. We have to have both. And I don't believe either that Jesus' teaching was only for love because some of the things that uh, are, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount are exactly what the Buddha said. 
And so I believe that any complete teaching that has um, the ability to transcend the human condition has to have both love and wisdom. And certainly uh, women's uh, role in in the Sangha as nuns may be uh, a little stronger uh, directed towards that aspect, but um, the teaching always has both in it. And I believe both of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I don't think I want to answer that right now because it is a part of uh, explaining karma and uh, so I, I would like to leave that question uh, because again, it's not something that can be answered in, in one sentence. Um, and then the, talk about it. And then if it's still up in the air, then ask me again, will you? Okay. I know it's always a topic that uh, um, is very um, well doubtful and controversial but I will try and explain it so that it isn't and then leave it up to the questions. Uh, from the labelling point of view, you being objective and you, you put a, a thought that you want to really label so it's objective and, and got rid of, um, do you, could you suggest some labels or give us mm-hmm. how far do you go? Do you have sort of a series that you can just sort of stick on them as soon as they arrive? Uh, yes, I can uh, give you some pre-printed labels. <laughs> <laughs> Past, future, nonsense, fantasy, dream, hope, memory, um, not necessary, later, and that's enough. (laughs) Any one of them will do, at any time at all. Any one of them will be correct. Anything else? Have you perceived human women's health as well, causing a woman's mind talking? When it's the heart talking or when it's the mind talking? Well, talking. Do you mean actually? Do you mean actually speaking? Yeah. Well. You can check that out. You can investigate whether you feel loving or compassionate and then your heart is involved or whether you feel disliking, rejecting, grasping, um, angry, then certainly the heart quality is negative. And as you have the loving and compassionate heart quality, your action that will follow will be within that. You cannot imagine that you can always go according to your feelings because 
our feelings are of both sides, negative and positive. Yes, it always is. It always is. You see, it's like this, and I will talk about that too. Uh, we have five, we consist of what are called the five aggregates, five bits and pieces. One is the body. We'll leave that out for the moment. And four is the mind. Right? Now, the first one that happens is the sense contact. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. But, Thinking is also a sense contact in the Buddha's explanation. And all sense contacts have a feeling as a follow-up, immediate. So all thinking has a feeling. But when we feel, then we react. And as we react, we get another feeling. So you always have both involved. All we have to do is be sure that both are pure. You have heart and mind always together. But you have to be pure. Is that clear? Okay. Yes? Well, the word feeling has two meanings. Sensation, physical, and emotion. So when we say, sometimes it's, we say feeling because we need emotion, but it has both. It has sensation and emotion. easily to differentiate between a physical sensation and, a, and an inner emotion. Not difficult. See, if you hit your toe on a stone, you have an unpleasant sensation, and then you might get an angry emotion from that. <laughs> but easily discernible. Hmm? 